Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBHFM. I'm Sherry Alexander, and this week we're talking to Nathaniel Rich, author most recently of Losing Earth, a Recent History. Welcome back to Writers Forum, Nathaniel. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, we know you as a um, fiction writer, a novelist, and when you came before our esteemed co-host, David Benedetto um, interviewed you on your latest novel, uh, King Zeno, which I must admit it was wonderful. I thought it was great. Um, and you're from New York. You've written three novels, and uh, you also wrote a book about film noir out in San Francisco. Love it. Thank you. Yeah, that was my uh, the first first thing I wrote uh, when I was 24, and uh, it's a peculiar book, but I'm proud of it. Well, do you think of yourself as a fiction writer or a journalist or both? Or Yeah, I think primarily a fiction writer. Um, I think it's misleading given, you know, the publication dates of the novels because um, they're fairly far apart, about five or six years um, between each of them, um, that maybe there's a sense that that's... Um, not something I devote as much time to, but in fact, it just takes me a lot longer to write to write novels. Sure. And so um, that's really the constant presence. But then um, it, I, I also do a lot of journalism, um, narrative journalism, and I write some criticism too. And I find that going between the forms um, is, is something I enjoy doing, but also very valuable for um, the various kinds of writing I do. That, you know, being out in the world for the journalism helps with the fiction, thinking about narrative uh, for fiction helps with the journalism and even the criticism. Um, so, you know, most of the writers that I grew up admiring the most, um, you know, are probably best known as novelists, but also uh, wrote as critics and, and journalists. And, and that's the kind of model that I've, I've tried to set for myself. Well, even though I'm emphasizing now um, in my later years more nonfiction, since I'm a journalist, I, I, when I read your uh, second novel, Odds Against Tomorrow, I thought this is kind of like a fictional version of what you came to write about. Did that influence you in any way in this choice of this subject? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Odds Against Tomorrow started out as a hunch I had for a journalistic piece about a risk analyst in New York uh, whose job it was to predict worst-case scenarios. Um, and the main character... Uh, in Oz Against Tomorrow, Mitchell Zucker is, in fact, this this type of figure. It turned out that the um, the job that, I, as I understood it, uh, that basically there was an error in my interpretation of the job, but that that opened up a window into it, this sort of fictional world that I, I wrote about in Oz Against Tomorrow. Um, but yeah, when when Oz Against Tomorrow was published, you know, it's about fears of the future and and about how we manage these great public crises in our own personal and, lives. And natural catastrophes being a major Absolutely. risk that we all face. Yeah, and so climate change was part of that, um, but not the totality of it. But when the book was published, um, it was taken up in a much larger conversation about climate change and fiction. And I think it, it, it was derived out of a, a sense that the literature around climate change was not um, doing the job. It wasn't helping us to understand uh, to grapple with some of these larger questions posed by climate change, um, particularly the ways in which, um, you know, not the political questions and the scientific questions, but but the personal questions and, and how this crisis was touching all of our lives 
um, in ways small and and you know grand and and so with losing Earth, I felt that it is it is in some ways a nonfiction um, companion uh, to Odds Against Tomorrow, although the stories are very different. It's also uh, it's the human story of a group of small group of people who during the 1980s um, were the first ones to grapple with this this problem and. You know, they grappled with it politically. Um, you know, these are political fixers, scientists within the government, um, an activist trying to develop a political solution to climate change. Um, but it's also they're also the first people to grapple with it personally and emotionally uh, and struggling with what this might mean for their own lives and for the future of of everything we know. Well, you said in the 80s, but you um, the book just came out in 2013 and. <clears throat> Your article that this Losing Earth is based on came out actually a year ago, and it was the entire magazine for the New York Times. And I have to be honest, <laughs> I subscribe, I'm a journalist, and I subscribe to the New York Times. And when, when that article came out, I was very, very depressed. Um <laughs> Have you have other people reacted that way to the book and the article? Yeah, look, climate change is a depressing subject, and especially this um, our failures to this point is you know are, are depressing, and and that's that's the heart of the story is you know why did we fail to solve this problem uh, when we first understood it, when we first had a good opportunity to do so? In fact. When we we were on the precipice of what was seen at the time as a global as a, as a solution, which was a global treaty to um, curb carbon emissions uh, in 1989, that's where the book ends. Um, so yes, it's depressing, and some people have responded that way, but but other people have have responded with um, this idea that it's galvanized them to thinking about it in a in a new way or to act. And what I've learned very early on uh, in my writing career, once I really started publishing pieces that were seen in the world, was that you can have no control over how a work is taken, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Um, and so I think the mark of a successful work for me um, is a work that's used for all kinds of different purposes. And so I think in the same way, the response to Odds Against Tomorrow was along similar lines. Some people were depressed, other people other people thought it was this very optimistic uh, book, um, and I think the same has been said of, of Losing Earth, and and I think that's appropriate because I, I feel that, you know, I, I write about issues that I find complex and morally complex and difficult and don't necessarily have clear resolutions. Well, we'll talk in a minute about what what you did just a month ago. You know, the Times did another whole story and uh, another whole issue, and you did the intro so I, I think it's had an amazing impact. Um, I'm just saying emotionally. Uh, you really sum up everything. You say everything we know now about climate change we knew in 1979. And that that really is what your this whole book is about. Yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, so the, the, the story is set between 79 and 89, um, with 79 being the date at which we can fix scientific consensus on climate change. Um, the fundamental science has not evolved since then. We have more information, we have more uh, data and, and more precision, but the basic understanding of the threat and the level of warming that would be caused um, was was known in 1979. There were a series of high-level 
scientific reports uh, and, and government reports at the time. And so that's when the action begins and you have the first efforts by a handful of people at first, really two or three or four people, to try to t turn that uh, the science into um, political action. And well, that's where the that's where it begins. One one of the wonderful things he did. This is not some you know thousand page book, and it was it was the length of a magazine. I guess you added an afterward um, when you made it into a book, but it's short enough that you can sit and read it in a couple of days, and you humanized it. You tell us about some of the people, and a few that stuck out to me was well Rafe Pomerantz. I mean. Yeah, Rafe is the hero, um, and he's a really heroic figure. So he's, 1979, he's sitting in his office uh, at, at Friends of the Earth, this environmental um, organization founded by David Brower, and he's an expert on air pollution issues, and he's reading a an obscure government report when he discovers an, this, this passing reference on page you know, 66 to climate change and, and the idea that increased uh, carbon dioxide emissions by fossil fuel companies could lead to um, basically the fall of, of civilization and, and he can't believe it. And, 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 and I, what's fascinating to me about his story is that he reacts, I think in the same way that we all react on some level when we, we first encounter this issue, which is disbelief. Um, and then this idea that, well, surely if this is such a big problem, somebody smart is figuring it out. Someone powerful is figuring it out. And he realizes that nobody is. And so he takes it upon himself to, um, try to push the government to action. And at first he thinks all that he needs to do is just tell everybody. So he goes around Capitol Hill having these meetings with high-ranking officials in, in the Carter administration. Um, and he l learns that, you know, he realizes that's not enough. And that's the first disillusionment. Um, but I think it's, it's he, he's a great, he was a great figure for me to write about because I think he proceeds intuitively the way all of us at least would like to think we would proceed if we were in, in his position. Um, but yeah, well, he's and, a deeply sympathetic, charismatic. And then the scientists, you you just don't, you know, cite their science and everything. And one that I think you did a great job of bringing to a human level was uh, James Hansen. Yeah, Hansen um, is somebody I knew had to be part of the story. He became, by the end of the decade, um, the scientist most associated with the issue. He basically became, you know, the preeminent climate scientist when he stood before Congress in 1988 and said, uh, global warming is here now and we have to act. Um, but he's, you know, he, his, his heroism, I think, comes from um, this remarkable decision he made very early uh, in his career to speak to people outside of the scientific community. Uh, this is more common today, although it's still somewhat controversial when scientists become public figures themselves. But at the time, it was really frowned upon and it, it, it cost him. He spoke to you know, New York Times reporters uh, back in the early 80s. He spoke before Congress. He tried to warn people of this problem and he lost, you know, he suffered. He lost his funding. He um, suffered great setbacks uh, to his career and personally. Um, and yet he fought for what what he thought was right. He reminded me of the first person I interviewed after our storm, our late unpleasantness, was Ivor Heerden. Mm -hmm. And he went around and he wrote a book and he said, uh, oh, the flood was really the fault of the U.S. government. And, I mean, he lost his funding, everything yeah. you're saying. It's a similar story. And, in fact, during that period, uh, during the Bush administ second Bush administration, um, 
Hansen himself had similar run-ins uh, where they came down, and this is beyond the action of the book, of course, but uh, in the early 2000s, um, he was going through the same kind of you know, censorship and uh, efforts to silence him within that administration Well, well. Hearden had a happy ending in that the U.S. Supreme Court finally upheld um, his theories that he was saying, you know, a month after the storm. Anyway, you did a great job with him, and it was interesting to see Al Gore. Um, I didn't realize that until I... You put everything into a perspective when you know, it's happening at the time, we might not realize. But I didn't realize, you know, Al Gore... Well, for political reasons, he suddenly wasn't paying quite so much attention to climate change as 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 he was before that, when he was running for president. Yeah, well, he's a complicated figure. I mean, obviously, uh, to put it lightly, he, he took it on in the early 80s, um, the issue out of concern, but also out of a sense that this was a political winner. He was a young, at the time he was a young congressman, not yet in the Senate, um, and he was trying to make a name for himself. And he had this very uh, lowly leadership position in a subcommittee of the science uh, committee. And he thought that this this issue, um, you know, nobody could be against fixing this global problem. And, and if he became the person on it, he would uh, gain popular support. Of course, it didn't work and at first, but he pushed it for the decade. But then, yes, when he run, ran for president in 1988, uh, when it was not polling very successfully, it's something that voters really cared about. He dropped it. Um, and so he's, you know, he's he's a major figure in the story. Uh, I spoke with him at length for the the piece, um, but he, every, you know, he's really a lightning rod. People within, not only you know on the political right, but even within the scientific and um, environmental community on this issue have very divergent things to to say about him. But but uh, you know he's he's a key figure, and it was important with him as with many of these other other characters to get at the the human story of what's going on. So it's I tried very hard to focus. Um, the story on to a human scale. Well, you get us to 1989. Of course, it's most of the book, and we only have a few, ten more minutes. Um, <clears throat> people got to read the book. Um, but a couple of the things that struck me. Uh, one thing is you came up with this: the different degrees of global warming and what it means. You know, you said one degree. Uh, we've gone up one degree since the industrial revolution. Um, and then since 1989, when this treaty, whatever it was, fell apart, we've had as much global warming as we had had ever? Well, we've had more carbon dioxide emissions since the last page of the book, of Losing Earth, basically, 1989, um, than in all of human civilization leading up to it. Um, you know, our rate the rate at which we are burning fossil fuels has increased and has accelerated. Um, and so uh, it's exponential. Um, yeah, and it's geometric. In other words, the, the things are getting shorter. You said at three degrees, and this is from, of course, the scientists, you're not making this no. up. Um, abandonment of our coastal cities. I mean, that's that's really scary. Four degrees, permanent European uh, drought. And five degrees, the end of human civilization. Yeah, I mean, what what I think is 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 so poorly understood about this issue, and part of it comes, it's, part of it is a linguistic question of the way we talk about it, the words we use, climate change, global warming. 
um, is that the concern is not for uh, warmth. <laughs> you know, it's not that we're going to burn up and uh, light on fire. Although, yes, in extreme situations, you have parts of the Persian Gulf that you, human beings won't be able to live in. But, but it's not the heat. It's the fact that just about every aspect of our civilization, our infrastructure, where our cities are located, uh, international trade, borders between nations um, are based on the, the premise that the climatic conditions on the planet now that we've always known will remain roughly stable. And once you knock that loose and once you have wildly different um, climatic patterns, um, it, put, puts, it puts major stresses on um, just about every aspect of our, our geopolitics, of our, you know, food and water security and all the rest. And and migra- migration, you know, if you have no food or water, you're not going to wait and get your passport stamped. You're going to go somewhere and take somebody else's food and water. Yeah. And if you're in, if you're in coastal Louisiana, um, maybe you move to Texas or, or Georgia, but if you're in Bangladesh or if you're in, you know, coastal Northern China, and instead of a couple million people, you're talking about hundreds of millions of people. Um, you might have to move into places that aren't very welcoming of you, and in fact, might have major, you know, regional tensions and not have the support um, mechanisms available. And so, really, what we're talking about is, you know, I think the way we'll feel it in a wealthy country like the U.S. The way one will will feel it most extensively first is through um, huge global unrest and and war. And we're really. Well, whose fault is it if you have to say, I mean, can we say Sununu? <laughs> well, it's, I mean, in, this, in, the, in, in the story of the decade, um, you have this, this remarkable moment at the end of the decade um, that I, I write about that really hadn't been written about before. I was sort of surprised. But I think, as you said, in the moment, things don't quite have, the, it's hard to have the sense of historical perspective, but you have this. Um, meeting in November of 1989 in Nordwijk in the Netherlands, um, the first high-level diplomatic meeting to negotiate this global treaty, and a uh, very strong treaty that you know James Hansen told me, um, if enacted and honored, uh, would have kept warming you know within one and a half degrees Celsius above historic levels, so essentially a safe trajectory. Um, and at the last minute, the U.S. withdraws from this this binding treaty and and I tell the story of, of why that happens, which is basically a single person within the George H.W. Bush administration, John Sununu, chief of staff, very powerful figure, has become enormously skeptic, skeptical about the science um, and the economics of the treaty. And and over the course of the first year of Bush's term and this, this political power play, he forces the U.S. delegation to withdraw from this binding agreement. Yeah, I didn't know anything about, I mean, I knew him as an, from the economy and had read negative things, but I didn't realize he was an MIT engineer himself, so he really felt that he knew it. What are some other, I mean, politics seems to be a huge um, aspect of the reason why we ended up today. What are what about the uh, energy companies? Yeah, well, from 1989. So basically, right as after after that's thwarted, the story from then to the present has been dominated by the role of of uh, oil and gas industry and this effort to um, sow ignorance and uh, 
to politicize the issue. Um, you know, the disinformation, disinformation campaign. They spend billions of dollars on, um, and you said they bribed people. Bribed politicians and scientists. Fake fake yeah, and it really took off in the 90s. Um, and, and that's how you get to this, this delirious place we're in now where you have a single political party um, denying the, the science. Um, and being even further uh, in in the thralls of denialism than the industry, which no longer claims that climate change is not real. Um, but, you know, what's striking about the period that I write about in the 80s is that it's not a politicized issue, that you have major Republicans uh, in Congress um, pushing, and even within the, the, the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administration, pushing for climate change solutions. Um, and so one of the, the worst effects of this denialism campaign has been this this act of um, propagating a public amnesia about the history of the issue, uh, where people don't people don't understand that the science was there was consensus in '79, and that members of both political parties were pushing very powerfully for a bipartisan. Well, yeah, we've. I mean, as we're taping this, the, today's New York Times has a thing that um, the president just in the past 24 hours has. Um, taken even more dramatic steps to um, weaken any any action. What, what are and to attack the scientific understanding. Yeah, that, that's the other most deadly thing, is that the, the attack is not only on solutions, but on the basic scientific uh, information collecting and, and information sharing that the government is responsible for. Um, but yeah, I think the thing to understand is that um, there are technological solutions what are some Today. carbon tax? Some kind of carbon pricing, um, you know, reforestation, lack of, sub, you know, stop these insane subsidies for the fossil fuel industry, increase uh, investment in renewable energy, um, improved agricultural practices. Um, there's this sort of host, developing decarbonization technology, which remains fairly speculative, but is part of any kind of roadmap that's out there for a solution. Um, does any of this have a chance in hell to, to happen. I mean, look at France when all they did was try to cut back on the gas and then the yellow vest protests and everything. Are we going to see that here if we actually ever tried to do anything? Well, the, the, the other thing to understand is that it's it's economically beneficial, these things, these, these principles. Maybe not if you're a coal company or maybe not if you're an oil and gas company that's tied up entirely with, you know, oil and, and reserves. But on the level of a nation and of the world, um, it's hugely uh, beneficial economically to make this transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Um, and, you know, what there are, that's not to say there aren't reasonable debates that could be had about things like carbon tax. So, yes, the Fran French model seems to be basically the worst possible political model for how to implement that. But, you know, that's one of the most devastating things about the denialism campaign is that it's it's deferred some real serious debates that you could, we could be having about, yes, what's the best form of a carbon tax? Yes, what's, what should we do about, um, you know, coal workers or oil and gas workers who um, are out of work because of, because profitability of, of the industry starts to decrease. Um, you could imagine in a functioning democracy, a real right and left debate about these issues and some compromise and, and some measures, but we haven't even begun those kinds of debates yet because you have one side that is insisting that the basic science is not even real. So, 
you know, there are lots of plans out there. Hansen has one. Um, they're available to us. And what's what's lacking is uh, political will to get it done. Uh, and really political will to even begin these conversations in a serious national way. Um, well, but it, I don't think it can share. happen. I mean, you've, you know, written the book, the article. And uh, as I said, a month ago, the New York Times did another whole issue updating it. And it seemed to me that there were some realistic um, ideas. And so, so <laughs> although it's a little discouraging, I'm a journalist and I wrote a book about um, what happened with our local paper. And uh, Dean Backe, <laughs> the editor, said there might not be any local newspapers in five years. I hope we still at least have the New York Times to lead the way. And another thing that gives me hope, <clears throat> you could live anywhere. And you came here, you're a young guy, I mean, this is radio, um, and, and you have a young family, you're just having your second child very soon, and you picked New Orleans. <laughs> so I thought, well, he picked New Orleans, and he's he's even uptown, so maybe these dire predictions where we go first, you know, New Orleans goes under, I mean... Well, I think that's exactly the kind of conversation that, you know... You know, people ask me, well, how can you live in New Orleans if you're aware of this? And of, of course, it's yes, it, it requires some amount of uh, personal denial. You know, there's there's some kind of blithe optimism required that and alternates with periods of dread. And I think um, New Orleans in that way, you know, I think anyone who lives in New Orleans is accustomed to really reckoning with existential crisis, whether it's, you know, climate change or next hurricane season um, or both together. And I think that, you know, for a city that's often thought of as a city of the past, um, in that way, I think it's very futuristic because I think that's the kind of condition of uncertainty that all of us will be in in the future with, with what's coming with climate change. And um, I think New Orleans is a great model for how to reconcile these, these difficult, um, in, you know, uncertainties and also how to accept them. Well, I can't tell you how much I admire your work, what you've done, and what you're continuing to do. Um, Philip Gurevich said, combining the dramatic immediacy of a police procedural with the urgency of prophecy, Nathaniel Rich's provocative book chronicles the failure of our scientific and political leaders to act to halt the climate apocalypse when they appeared on the verge of doing so and convincingly cast the triumph of denial as the defining moral crisis for humankind. You've been listening to Writers Forum, and we want to thank our guest this week, Nathaniel Rich, author most recently of Losing Earth, A Recent History. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.